I listened to a seminary professor one day talking about a trip with some students to Amsterdam. Well, I have only passed through Amsterdam, never leaving the airport on the way to Turkey years ago, and uh, don't know much about the streets of Amsterdam, but I understand that there are places in Amsterdam as you wander through uh, that will well, be difficult. Uh, could be tempting for some, uh, could be highly inappropriate. As the seminary president and professor was walking with a student, uh, one of the businesswomen of that area uh, came up and spoke to them. They were very quick to say, no, thank you, and they moved, moved right along and kept walking. A few steps down the road, uh, the professor turned to the student and asked him, what do you think Jesus would have done in that situation? Well, that's a dangerous spot for a seminary student to be put in. This guy's going to be grading me. I, you know, I, I know how he reacted, and he's just asking me, how would Jesus have reacted? The student thought about it as they took a few more steps walking down the, the road. The student said, I'm not exactly sure. But I think Jesus might have offered to buy that lady a meal and sit down with her in a restaurant and talk to her about a heavenly father who loves her in spite, in spite of all that her life, all the sin that her life had gotten involved in and wrapped around. The seminary professor listened, convicted by a student who, who looked and saw an inconsistency of what the student thought Jesus would have done and what the student just saw the seminary professor do. And the seminary professor hung his head and he said, yes, but can you imagine the headlines of a seminary professor, no, a seminary president talking to a prostitute on the streets of Amsterdam? A picture makes it on the front page of a newspaper. And the professor says, oh, but I was just going to invite her to a meal. Sure you were, professor. Cried a little bit as he told the story. And he said, we walked on. The story we see here is an occasion to be introduced to a couple of, a couple of new groups of people. We haven't seen them yet in the uh, gospel as Mark tells it. As Mark is unfolding the story, as he had been taught by Peter, uh, he speaks about uh, tax collectors. He speaks about another apostle, that is Matthew. He speaks about sinners, tax collectors, about Pharisees. And he talks about Jesus. Let's walk with Jesus for a few verses. Let's read. As I read aloud, I encourage you to, to follow along. You can find it in your pew Bible on page 8, 837. I encourage you to keep it open to that passage as we make our way through it together. Verse 13, it begins, it says, Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And Levi rose and followed Jesus. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Heavenly Father, thank you for this, your word. 
may it have your effect on our lives today. Father, may my words fall, but your words rise. Father, may I decrease, that you would increase. Lord, I pray that your people would be transformed by the renewing of their minds today, leaving this place changed by an encounter with the true, the living, and the loving God. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, do you remember just a few weeks ago, as we were looking through Mark chapter 1, if you just flip back a page in your Bible, you remember that time when Jesus was out uh, praying. He had left, he'd risen early, this is verse 35 of chapter 1, he'd risen early in the morning, and he went to pray for a long while, it says, before daylight. An example that would certainly be talked about on Wednesday night in the prayer study. Jesus praying long before daylight, he went out, he went to a solitary place, and he prayed there. Well, Simon, Peter, and the other disciples went looking for Jesus and told Jesus that everyone is looking for you. And they were wanting Jesus to come because many wanted to be healed. Many wanted to be cleansed. Many wanted to be made well. And Jesus had these words to say. He said in verse 38, let us go to the next town, for there I may preach. Because for this purpose I came forth. We see Jesus being faithful to his mission and ministry uh, right here in verse 13 in chapter 2. It says, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. This is why Jesus, Jesus, yes, he came to die. His life was focused like, his face like flint, uh, focused toward Jerusalem, indeed through his whole entire life that even at his birth, the myrrh was a significance because it was pointing to the fact that one day Jesus would, would die and he would do so for our sins. But in his ministry, it was for the proclamation of the gospel, the preaching of the kingdom of God. This is why he came, and this is what he's doing. He's faithful, and he went beside the sea, and the crowd was all coming to him, and he was teaching them. Now, we have to ask this question, first off, what was going on? And I believe this is the first point that we see in this text of the three basic points that we see, the activities going on here. The first thing was that Jesus was about the proclamation of grace. He was about preaching and teaching grace, living it out, demonstrating it, yes, but he said, the purpose for which I came is to preach. And what is the object, the subject of that preaching? Grace, the grace of God. The grace of God that we we sang about a moment ago, the choir sang about, and that Jesus was proclaiming. How do I know that? Well, a couple of things. First off, the simple message that we saw when the, uh, the paralytic was lowered down into the room. Remember that? The first words that he spoke to him, the first pronouncement he made to that young man is, Your sins are forgiven. A statement of grace, a statement of love, a statement of God's unmerited favor to this sinful young man. But even more, this was the promise of what Jesus would do. If you go back and you read it through the, uh, the, the prophecies, particularly in Isaiah, and you get into Isaiah 52 and 53, we begin to see those passages which have been come to know as the passages or the prophecies of the suffering servant. And we, we know who was promised in those. As you read them so clearly, it's speaking, of, about, it's speaking about Jesus. But in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, it says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. And we think about that very generically, about the beautiful feet of those who go and proclaim the gospel. Joe and Becky Harrell, who will be here tonight to talk to us uh, about uh, going into all the world, going upon the mountains to proclaim good news. But we see this specifically and perfectly promised 
and perfected in Jesus. The one who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Jesus' ministry was about the proclamation of grace. Grace is more than just the words we say before we enjoy a really delicious meal. Would somebody say grace, and we hope it's quick because it sure looks good. But, but, but grace truly is that fact that we who deserve death, we who, if, if, if God were to leave us in and of ourselves, we would deserve nothing but that he would despise us, that he would cast us away. Because every opportunity we have in our own strength, we chase after other things. It is by grace that God has called us, has saved us, and it is by grace that he is conforming us more and more into the image of our Savior. It's all of grace, all of grace. So we begin by seeing in this passage the proclamation of grace, but we move very, very rapidly, very quickly into this, this divine appointment in the middle of the proclamation of grace, and that is the encounter with Levi. Levi says he was the son of Alphaeus. We know that Levi uh, will become known as Matthew. Matthew, the author of the, the first gospel of the New Testament. Matthew, Levi, the tax collector. So as we see Jesus about the ministry, the proclamation of grace, we see this divine interruption, this divine appointment in the midst of it, the call to grace. The call to grace. We meet Levi. The question is, who is this man? Well, Levi, it says, was a tax collector. And I actually have a a chaplain's assistant who works with me uh, in the Air Force National Guard uh, who actually works for the IRS. And I say, don't tell people that. (laughs) They'll never come to chapel. And we don't let her take up the offering either. The notion of a tax collector, we would certainly sit back and say, oh, we would all like to pay less taxes, certainly. The idea of maybe the misspending of taxes on a federal, even a state and local level, we look at that and we shake our head and we make those noises and we publish things on Facebook and we say, oh, taxes are awful. But I need you to understand uh, specifically when we, we see that Levi was a tax collector, that it is of extreme significance to the readers who would read about Jesus as he is walking, as he is proclaiming grace. And then he turns and he goes not simply to a tax collector, but a tax collector sitting at the tax table surrounded by all those ill-gotten gains. You see, Levi worked for Rome. He worked for Rome. He had bought into this business of collecting taxes. Now, Rome, you remember, in the time of of, of Jesus, the Rome was seen as an occupying nation. And the children of Israel were anxious and desirous that a Savior would come, a Messiah, like Moses, that would deliver them out from under Pharaoh, or in this case, out from under Caesar. And they saw the, the Roman government as being overly oppressive. They saw the Roman government as being extorting uh, uh, the little things that they, the few things that they had, and, and, and wrongly reigning over the land that God had given them. So Levi worked for them. Now his name was Levi. What does that mean? He was a Jewish man. He was a Jewish man. He was a traitor. He was an extortioner. He was a robber, a thief an outcast. But of all of those things, the the Jews would have looked at him and said, you have betrayed your people. For you take our money and you send it to Rome 
for them to pay for their armies, the expansion of their kingdom, and the infrastructure that is just taking over the land. Now, collecting taxes, what Levi would do, the way that he made a living, was not simply receiving a steady and regular paycheck from the Roman government. He would make money by saying, if your taxes were 100 denarii, 100 days' wages, I'll collect from you as much as 1,000 denarii. If I can get it out of you, if I can, if, as much as I can get out of you, Rome is expecting so much, but every other bit that I can take from you is my salary. So he was taking money in abundance of what Rome was asking, and he was profiting through others' affliction. They hated tax collectors in that day, The Talmud said, the Talmud, remember, was kind of a codification of a lot of the practices of the day. This is not scripture, but this is the way that many looked at how to live a a biblical life. Uh, There's a lot of of discussion we could have about how accurate it was in giving description, but the the reigning uh, notion of living in the day was it is righteous to lie, it is righteous to deceive a tax collector, saying it's okay to lie to those who are stealing your money. Now, that's not in the Old Testament. It was a commentary on, on practice. But no, no tax collector in that day was, was permitted to give evidence in court. He was never to be trusted. He couldn't be a judge. And he couldn't enter a synagogue or a temple of worship. You remember in Luke chapter uh, 18 about the publican and the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the tax collector and the Pharisee. It was the publican, the tax collector, same word, uh, that stood afar off and beat his breast. Right? He stood afar off because he was not able to come into the temple where they might hear the word of God. They might be transformed by this proclamation of grace that we see Jesus doing. But Jesus comes to Matthew. Now, there are a couple of different kinds of tax collectors. There was the goodbye, and there was uh, also the, uh, the mokis. These were two different types of tax collectors, uh, the higher tax collectors, the lower tax collectors who were kind of subcontracted out to do that. And they would, in turn... Uh, get hirelings to go in to collect more and more taxes. There was official taxes on land, but then there was taxes that were imposed simply because as you're walking, they would even impose taxes on the number of legs that your donkey had. I know, it's kind of, it's kind of like a toll for the number of axles you have. That They would come up with any reason in the world to get a little bit more money out of you, and the people hated them. People would curse Levi. As, as they were following Jesus... I can only imagine that, that so many would look and they'd see Levi sitting there at his tax, uh, tax table and say, oh, what a wretched man. Now let's pause for just a minute and, and come to grips with the reality of what we're dealing with. We're not dealing with somebody like we've experienced before, the paralytic. Someone who was in a, a miserable state through no fault of their own. This is not a leper who is forced to say, I'm unclean and walk on the other side of the road, that people said they're unclean and they were put aside because of a disease that they uh, contracted. No, Levi was not sick or orphaned or widowed. He made his choices. He preferred to steal from his own people than work for the labors of his own hand. He chose to take from his people for the benefit of an oppressive government. And people felt justified in saying, what a despicable man. So what happens? As Jesus is proclaiming grace, we we see right here in the text, it says very simply, 
he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax table, and he said to him, follow me. Levi rose, and he followed him. You need to, you need to see that as Jesus called him, what he did was he issued a deliberate, a clear, and an effective call. It wasn't gradual preparation. Jesus called, Levi followed. It was just a, a simple call. The, the choice, the command, the initiative was entirely that of Jesus. It wasn't that Jesus began to appeal to his emotions in the midst of a great big crowd to begin to psychologically pressure him and then to offer that opportunity and hope and hope and pray and, and plead that Levi would follow. Jesus spoke the word of command. He said, Levi, follow me. I want this to give us great hope, if I can pause here for a moment, to give us great hope in our work of evangelism. Now, we cannot say that all I have to do is walk down the streets and say, follow Jesus, and people will leave their businesses and follow Jesus. But let me tell you that we have been called to proclaim a Savior who is able to effectually call in this way. We have hope in our evangelism. When you go back and you read the promise that God made to Abraham, and remember, just like we sing in Bible school, Father Abraham had many sons. I'm one of them and so are you. Right arm, left arm, all that, right? I'm one of them, so are you. So the promises that God made to Abraham, we, we need to know them. We need to trust in them. And how can we trust in them? Because God will make them come to pass. And God took Abraham out and he showed him the skies and he said, your descendants will be more numerous than those stars if you're able to count them. And that promise cannot be made if God was not going to make it come true. And how does that happen? By the effective calling of the Holy Spirit on sinners. So as we go forth... We need to go forth faithfully. We need to go forth lovingly, winsomely. We need, to, we need to go out and proclaim Jesus, but we must never ever mistake that it's by our strength, by our persuasion, by our talents, by our good looks, that anyone comes into the kingdom. That we pray diligently, continually, for the transformation of the lives of those around us, and we go forth faithfully, and we count on our Savior to call them effectively. And so what does Levi do? Levi responds. He says he rose and he followed Jesus. Matthew Henry, as he, as he was commenting on this particular passage, I love what he had to say. That, that Levi, he, he left the, the, the coins and everything right there at the table and he followed Jesus. We, we don't see any type of equivocation. We don't see any type of delay that Levi followed Jesus. Henry says... Great sin and great scandal before conversion are no bar to great gifts, graces, and advancements. No. In these things, God is more glorified. The, the tax collector that we just described, great is the scandal of this man. He, he is scorned. He is despised. He is despicable. He is the one that the people said, you know what? If he goes and spends eternity in hell, he is the one who deserves it. That's, that's the attitude that many would have. Matter of fact, that was the purpose in cutting them off is to go ahead and preemptively declare God's judgment against them and say they can't come into the temple. They can't come into the synagogue. They can't hear the word of God. You are to have nothing to do with them. We are cutting them off that they would stand condemned from this point forward. And what a remarkable thing it is that Jesus walks over to that tax table and he says, Levi, follow me. And how much is God glorified in the fact that Levi did? We need to remember and we need to rejoice 
Christian, as we pause here in the midst of this text, that as, as much as I described the life of Levi, the wretched lifestyle that he had led to that point, how he had complete disregard for the people around him, no love for his people, no love for God, uh, no love for the promises of God and the kingdom of God, and Jesus met him and changed his world that very moment. I need to remind you here today that while you may not have acted in such a way, your heart was absolutely capable of, of being that wretched, that wicked, that apart, were it not for the work of the Spirit on you. Jesus found you where you were in the depths of your sin and your misery, and he called you to himself. Into a relationship where your sins are forgiven, where you are loved. Jesus says in John 15, 16, you did not chose me, choose me, but I chose you. He said, I looked, I saw you, I knew your sin, and I know your sin better than you do. And you know what? I love you. I love you anyway. I love you in spite of that. I love you greater than that. Now come and follow me. Because Jesus is a friend, a great friend, a loving friend to sinners. Now this is where we begin to see the great scandal. The scandal of grace. This is a scandal of Jesus' life. The idea that he had more to do with the irreligious than the religiously respectable people of his day. And I, I, want, to, I want to tread carefully, but I'm going to tread firmly as well. And this idea that, that Jesus does have a greater effect on the irreligious of his day than he had on the respectably religious of his day. And I want to see if we might discern any disconnect in the way that we live today. Any, any disconnect in, in our life, in our ministry, in our message from the way Jesus preached and taught and lived. We see the scandal of God's grace right here. So... Let's meet the tax collectors. Who are these tax collectors? Who are these sinners? We see in verses 15, 16, and 17 that four times in these three verses, the word sinners, sinners is used. Three times we see the word publican or tax collector used. So seven references to disreputable people. We talked about tax collectors just a minute, but this idea, sinners, uh, it's, the, the root word there is those who sin, those who are committed and devoted to vices, prostitutes, drunkards, thieves, reprobates, those who people would look and say their lives have been marked out by the wicked things that they do. They are known by their deeds, and they have already been cut off from society as saying those are not respectable people. We have nothing to do with them. For the Pharisees and the scribes, sinners were a class of people who were marked by manifestly immoral lives or questionable occupations. We just don't have anything to do with them. Another thing that we see in the midst of this, as Jesus is, is sitting down at the table with them, that guilt by association is a weapon that was used in that day, that if you hang around with them, you must be one of them. And nothing has really changed. Guilt by association is a political weapon of those who, who are discontent, those who are ambitious, those who would want to condemn others, and they condemn Jesus falsely. And they say that he is obviously must be committing the same sins that they have committed if he's hanging around with them. Jesus says, you called me a drunkard. You called me a glutton because of the people I hung around with. Well, who else do we meet in this passage? We see right here, and this is the first time we see this direct interaction and this real difficulty, apart from those who grumbled uh, there uh, uh, in healing the... Uh, says some of the scribes in, in chapter 2, verse 6, grumbling uh, about Jesus, but the first mention of the Pharisees here in, in chapter 2. And these were the 
the formalists. These were those who worshipped tradition, who were proud of their own righteousness. They held up the traditions of men. Uh, Now, we often use the word Pharisee synonymously with hypocrite. And, And that's not really fair. Uh, There is a great level of hypocrisy there, but when Jesus says your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees, you need to know that the system that the Pharisees had established, they zealously kept to. And they believed that they had kept the law. And they they had constructed uh, teaching upon teaching upon teaching of how many steps you could take on the Sabbath before you violated it. You could only take so many steps from home before you were considered to be traveling on the Sabbath, which was forbidden by the fourth commandment. And, and so in doing so, they came up with a way where they said, well, you know what, uh, how, well, then what is my home? If I could only go so many steps from home uh, before I'm traveling on the Sabbath, how do I define my home? Well, essentially, please forgive me for a little anachronism here, but it's simply saying, well, your home is wherever your toothbrush is. So if along the way, everywhere that you might want to be on the Sabbath, you go and bury a toothbrush, then you're never more than a few steps away from it. Aha, I found a loophole. This is, this is essentially the life. They, they were, were seeking to meet the letter of the law so that God would look upon them with favor because of what they had done. And they did it well. They, they kept the law. They kept the law as they interpreted and applied it. Now, these, these, these Pharisees uh, are, are beginning to mumble, and they, they start talking about the idea of Jesus hanging around uh, with sinners and with tax collectors. And Jesus responds to them when he says that, uh, that they're, the well have no need of a physician, we see in verse 17, uh, but those who are sick. And he also says, I didn't come to call the righteous, but I came uh, to call sinners to repentance. Well, the, the Pharisees never ever would have thought of themselves as sick or sinners. They believed themselves to be righteous. They washed right. They lived right according to the laws that they had constructed, and they also thought much of of that position and being called rabbi, being called teacher. Now, Romans chapter 3 says there's none who is well and there's none who is righteous, but the Pharisees never, ever would have said, well, I'm sick, I'm sinner. And because they never would say, I'm sick or I'm a sinner, they never would have responded to Jesus' call. They never would have never would respond to him calling sinners to repentance. And so Levi, Levi we see here though, he says, I I am a sinner. Everybody tells me I'm a sinner. I see in my own life that I am sick. I am needy. And he followed Jesus. Tim Keller, he wrote a book called The Prodigal God. He says, Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while offending the Bible-believing religious people of his day. However, I must say, in the main, our churches today do not have this effect. The kind of outsiders that Jesus attracted are not attracted to contemporary churches, even our most avant-garde ones. We tend to draw conservative, button-down, moralistic people. The licentious and the liberated or the broken and the marginal avoid our churches. That can only mean one thing. If the preaching of our ministers, the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus did. I think maybe I'm only brave enough to say that because I'm quoting Tim Keller. 
Let me ask you just, what does this mean? Does this mean, let's let's just, let's start talking about an action plan. We can sit around and talk about things all the time. I've been in meetings like that where you sit around and you talk about grandiose and great and lofty things and then you leave there and it doesn't make a difference. We just kind of all nod and agree and say, hmm, give me a lot to think about there, preacher. What does this mean? Does this mean then that, oh, oh, maybe, you know what? The Gentleman's Club down the road has a really great buffet. Maybe we should go start having lunch there on a regular basis. <laughs> Certainly there's sinners in there, yes. Students, maybe, maybe this means uh, that while your friends are out getting drunk and high, you want to be right there with them, you know, as a witness to them. Uh, they need Jesus, don't they? Before you get up and walk out, please know I'm, I'm, I'm being facetious, but, but with a point. And, and, and I'm, not, I'm not at all saying that we're going to, to start a ministry where we go and hang out in drug dens and gentlemen's clubs. There are no occasions when you see Jesus engaging with sinners and with tax collectors. There are no occasions that we see him engaging and hanging out with sinners where they continue to engage in sinful behavior. Yeah, we don't see him just sitting there while they're engaging in orgies and drunkenness and him just being there and condoning it by his presence. We don't see that. And we must be careful about that in our own lives that we, we look and say, is my presence here condoning sin and the mockery of God and his word? And also, likewise, there is no evidence that Jesus ever ate with sinners and tax collectors and did not call them to repentance. That it cannot just simply be an, an ongoing presence and hopefully as they look and see my life and that I'm a goody two-shoes and I'm not engaging what they do, maybe, maybe they'll be influenced in a good way. Uh, Jesus was very deliberate in saying, I love you. I love you. I know who you are. I know what your life has been about. But I want you to know that there is, there is a heavenly Father who has sent me that you might be captive to these sins no longer. Since Jesus, Jesus did spend these time with these sinners, we need to, we need to know that we too need, need to go out. We do need to, to seek out sinners, the wretched, the, the deliberately wicked out there. But we must do so for the purpose of calling them to repentance. And, and our presence with them, it cannot condone sin. And it cannot be enabling of an ongoing mockery of God. It, just, it can't be. We have to be careful about that and, and following the example of our Savior. And it must not be done in a way either, and, and this is again an examination of your own life and your own weakness and mine too, that it must never, ever be done in a way that's going to drag you down into sinful patterns of behavior in life. That, you know, when you think, I'm going to go and wrestle with a pig, that way the pig will get a little bit cleaner. That, that, that doesn't happen. We get dirty. But, but what I'm talking about here is not simply a change of your weekly habits. I'm not saying that you need to add a party or two to your monthly calendar, and in that way you can go and live like Jesus. That would be too easy. That would be too simple. And let me tell you, it's just not going to work. What we see here and what I want to charge you with today is a fundamental change of your heart. A fundamental change of your heart. A spirit-enabled cultivation of a love for the lost. A sincere appreciation of the love that God has for sinners. A biblically shaped understanding that it took no less, and hear this carefully, no less of Christ's sacrifice to save you than it takes to save the most unashamedly wretched and wicked sinner out there. It took Jesus on the cross to save you. And that sacrifice 
is more than enough to save the vilest offender. We must do away with this idea of us coming into the church and preaching about them out there. It's not an us against them, it's an us for them, because we were them. Apart from Jesus, we are them. Apart from Jesus, we have no hope in this world. And if they don't have Jesus, they have no hope. And it must be that we would look and say, I want to go and to proclaim to them so that it would not be us against them, but they would be us. We would be together, we would rejoice, and we would both together become more and more like Jesus. So now what's the limitation to this? Why isn't this working? Why don't we see this happening? Why do we see basically churches swapping members back and forth, you know, respectable people going down the street to the newest flavor of church? Why isn't that we see, why don't we see sinners coming in who need? Well, let me tell you, there's, there's a, a couple of reasons. A couple of reasons. One of them is difficulty. It's hard. That's hard ministry is what I'm talking about here. It's difficult ministry. It's ministry that, 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 that will hurt. There's there is a, the problem is this. The process is lengthy. The process is arduous. The process is difficult. The process brings many sleepless nights. The idea that we would go out there, that we would bring sinners in, that we would love on them, we would put Jesus before them. But here's what doesn't happen. They don't pray a prayer and then start looking just like us. And you know what? I've looked in the mirror. I don't want them to look just like me. I want them to look just like Jesus. And you know why? Because I want me to look just like Jesus. A church, a, a church must be more than just a gathering of respectable folks. A, a gathering of respectable folks is easy. We, we have great music, we have great preaching, we have great teaching, we have comfortable pews, we have good food, and we go out there and we recruit all the respectable people from all the other churches. You know what? Respectable people give a lot of money. Respectable people are not difficult to deal with. We show up, we worship, we hug each other, we go home, we show up next week, and we do this until we die. That's, that's just a, a kind of a typical church model that we see. But you know what? We, we deceive ourselves. And we fail to love as Jesus loved us in doing so. We fail to go and to make disciples. We, we just fail in doing that. It's difficult. It's difficult to go and to proclaim Jesus to Levi. Second reason we don't do it. Second reason we don't do it is that there are consequences to it. One of the great consequences to it is your reputation. Your reputation, not your reputation among sinners, not your reputation among uh, the tax collectors out there, not your reputation to Levi, your reputation among religious, among the respectable. You're likely, you think about the woman in in John chapter 4. John chapter 4, Jesus comes and he speaks to this Samaritan woman and he speaks to her in a loving way. He talks to her about the water that would quench her thirst forever. He says that there's about worshiping and spirit and truth. He talks about all of this wonderful thing with this woman at the well. And she goes and she tells everybody about this man who knows her better than anybody else. And, and he seemed to love her anyway. But it was even his disciples, while they were very respectful of Jesus, they came and they wondered and they were amazed that he was sitting there bothering to talk with this woman. And, and we think about it even more, that idea that if we go and if you are very deliberate about spending time with the wicked, with the sinners out there, those people that are difficult and hard to love, those people who have made it their life to this point to curse the things of God and to hurt people around them. When you go and do that, your reputation will suffer. Again, not your reputation with those tax collectors who all of a sudden say, wow, somebody really loves me, but among the respectable. But our Savior did that, did he not? Philippians chapter 2 said he made himself of no reputation. 
Isaiah chapter 3 said he had no stately form, he had no majesty. We took no account of him. The self-righteous will always falsely accuse you. Let them, I say. Their words will condemn them. Their place is pitiful. Let me, let me end this with, with a parable, a quick little story, a story to make a point. A story not of a nameless sinner, but a man or woman that you know. A man or woman that you know, and you can put a name to. A name, a person that respectable people talk about. Maybe the office drunk. He may be the school bully. He may be that, that promiscuous neighbor down the street. As you think about that person, you think about the years of scandal that have gone along. Gone along in the life of that person. How good church folk would gather with a cup of coffee and with spiritual words gossip about that, that sinner. We're really good at that, by the way. We're really, really good at, at sharing concerns and prayer requests and love, which is just a very spiritual way of saying, I got a juicy bit of gossip that I want to tell you about somebody, but I know I shouldn't gossip, so I'm going to share something with you in love. You know, we really need to pray for him. Yeah, I know. I, I heard that he went out for a party on Friday night, and he didn't get back home till Monday morning. They had to call in sick, and we know they weren't really sick. Oh. I'm so thankful that my life is not wrapped up in that sort of thing. Or maybe, maybe that bully, that bully students, the bully at, at school that's always mocking the smart kids and beating up on the weak and stealing whatever he, they have that he wants. And it's not a nameless sinner I'm talking to you about this morning, but you know somebody that, that you know. Now what if, what if the respectable people, the church people began to gossip the next day and say, you know, I saw Richard spending a lot of time with that guy the other day. I wonder what that's all about. You know what I heard? I heard that Richard's probably doing the same thing now. That's the only reason is, is, is he must be doing the same thing. That's why they're spending all that time together. It's not true, but that's the story. And the story continues. Well, I heard that, that this person, this scandalous person, has, has started going to Millbrook Presbyterian Church last Sunday. Huh. Well, I guess they just feel like they can sin all week and then show up for an hour on Sunday and get it all wiped away. If you think you've never heard conversation like this, perhaps you haven't been listening to the same church folk I have. Now, what if that same classy person, that same respectable person would say, you know what, I went to Millbrook Presbyterian Church last week and I don't think I can go back. I can't go back. I walked in and you wouldn't believe what the folks were that I saw there. You know, so-and-so was there and -and so-and-so was there and -and so-and-so was there. And I just can't believe that those type of people would be in that church. You know what? That church wouldn't be attracting people like that unless they were compromising. That church wouldn't be having people sitting in those pews unless they were soft-selling the gospel. I just just can't go back there. I'm going to go somewhere where they're going to make sure to to preach the word and to convict sinners and and, and to make sure that people like that know that they have no place in the respectable house of God. I'm going to take my big check and go somewhere else. I I bet Millbrook Presbyterian Church could probably use the money, but they're going to miss out on it. I know those people aren't tithing. (laughs) I'll just take my big tithe check to the first sanctified holiness clean-cut church. And so what do we end up with, brothers and sisters? What do we end up with here? What, what would our church look like in the midst of that? You know what? It'd be pews. Pews right here filled, but filled with men and women, families who knew they were sick, families who, individuals who knew they were sinners, who heard the call of Jesus and rejoiced. Not the rich, 
not the pretty, not the famous, not the respectables, but sinners saved by grace. How amazing would that be? And you know, and if we had a whole section of here that the combined contributions of this whole section over here, when when they were faithful and excited and tithing on what they had, and that whole section was $10 that they were able to give, praise God. I don't want big checks. I want hearts. I want hearts that understand what it is to be saved. And in order to go out and to win those, we need to remember what it is. I, I don't want a pews full of respectable people. No, hear me, please. <laughs> Behave yourselves. But your righteousness is not because of your respectability. Your righteousness is because of Christ. As we want to be more like Jesus, let us go into the world and tell others that they can be more and more like Jesus. What would a church like that be like? Praise God, I want to see. Pray with me. Lord, this text is hard. This text impacts our lives. This text changes what we do. And Father, so often your word is something I would rather be different. But as I see this within the setting of the gospel of grace, I thank you, Lord, that at a point in my life, you found me as Levi sitting surrounded by the mountain of my own construction, the extortion and the lies upon which I had built my life, And you grabbed me by the hand, you looked me in the eye, and you said, follow me. And even beyond that, that you bid me to engage all those others around me to say, let's together be transformed more and more like this one who loved us first. Father, we pray, I pray, and I pray it's the prayer of the hearts of all who hear my voice right now, Lord, that you would send us into this world to love sinners as you have loved us and to love them enough to share the gospel of grace and call them to repentance, to love them into the congregation, to love them into the family and to be ready to do the hard work of ministry of building and making disciples by your power and in your strength and in your image. Lord, I pray that this would be the scandal of the gospel here at the Presbyterian Church. The scandal of the gospel everywhere your word is proclaimed. Lord, may this be what we are about. And may it be to your glory. And may your praise be known. For we thank you. That while we were not lovable, you loved us. With a scandalous, a wondrous, a lavish grace and love. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.